0: Today's scripture comes from Joshua, chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. You can find it in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses said, or I'm sorry, remember the word that Moses, um, you you saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan." But all the men of valor among you shall pass over, armed before your brothers, and shall help them, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession, and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise."
1: Thank you, Sydney. Good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. Well, the biggest news this past week is not that Marshall beat Notre Dame, although for some of you that might be the biggest news. It was the passing of Queen Elizabeth. So I thought this morning I would bring to you uh, a little bit of British history uh, by way of illustration. And I'm gonna talk about what was known as Operation... Nimrod. Uh, This was a mission, a rescue mission, that unfolded in May of 1980. You may remember it if you were alive back then. Uh, It was broadcast on live television. And what happened there were some terrorists from Iran. They stormed uh, the embassy in London, the Iranian embassy in London. They took hostage over two dozen people. And uh, what they were fighting for is this was a a radical group that was fighting for independence in southern Iran. They wanted independence, and they also wanted release of political prisoners. Well, this was a big deal. It was public public knowledge. It was on television. The demands were, were broadcast on public television. And so they brought in the police. They brought in the negotiators and the military, and a siege... Ensued. And, uh, and this happened for six days, and then it reached a tipping point. What happened was uh, the terrorists got frustrated and they killed one of the hostages and dumped the body out of the window. And that was it for the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. And if you know a little bit about Margaret Thatcher, she is uncompromising. She was a very tough leader. So, what did she do? She called in. The SAS, the Special Air Service. It was an elite unit within the British Army. And so they, came, they went in, they devised the plan to go in from both the ground and from the roof, and they executed that plan and went in. They took out all of the terrorists, and they saved all but one of the hostages. It was deemed a great success, a great rescue mission. And like any mission that's before any team, they would have to have had to prepare. They would have to evaluate and assess threats to the mission, and of course, they're gonna have to have a clear understanding about the rewards of the mission. Now, when we talk about preparation, the British Army, they have this adage called the seven P's. Many of you, well, some of you may not know this, it's called Prior Planning and Preparation Prevents Poor Performance. And if you are accounting, I skipped one of the P's. And some of you guys can go afterwards and figure out which P I skipped. Uh, that was not appropriate for this morning. Uh, but yeah, preparation is needed for a mission. So the SAS, they, they prepared in all sorts of ways. They were skilled and prepared in counterterrorism. Uh, They had rehearsed this hostage rescue situation many times. Uh, But also, they would have to have made some practical preparations, right? Simple things like packing their bags, gathering up ammo, checking their weapons. Uh, They were also prepared by their leaders, and they would have to follow the chain of command before the mission and even during the execution of the mission, so that's part of their preparation. Now, what about the threats? Well, actually, they would have to be considering equipment failure, right? Failures in execution. And what happened when this was actually going on, the command, one of the commandos, the lead commando uh, of the team that was on the roof, when he was going down the side of the building, he got stuck. His zip line got stuck. Uh, that was a threat to the mission because what happened was, one of the other commandos swung over, trying to help unstick his, uh, his friend here, and he ends up breaking the window and alerting the terrorists to what's going on, and that caused a commotion, and they had to manufacture something on the fly. They had to improvise. And so that was a threat to the mission, and finally, this team of men would have to have a clear recognition of the mission rewards. The rewards of the mission, of course... The rescue of the hostages would be a good reward. But for them as a team, returning home to their family and their friends and finding rest from this mission would be a great reward for them. Well, similarly, as we unpack the scripture before us, Joshua and the nation of Israel, they're about to engage a mission, okay? And so they're going to have to prepare for that mission. They're going to have to assess mission threats And they're going to have to recognize mission rewards. And so before we jump into those points in our scripture this morning, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Let's ask for God to illuminate his word to us this morning. Lord, we do thank you for the great privilege that we have in your word And Lord, we cannot understand it without your Holy Spirit. We cannot see it. We cannot hear it. Our hearts cannot be transformed unless your spirit is at work. And so we pray for that this morning, that you would transform our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears so that we may see your truth in your word this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And so by way of recap, if you weren't with us last week and just for refreshing for those who were with us Uh, This book of Joshua kicked off last week, and it, it started out with a transition, right? The nation was in crisis in transition. Why? Because Moses, the great leader, was dead. And Joshua would have to assume command of the people and take that challenge of leading the people across the Jordan River from east to west and go into the promised land and take the land. And in order for him to do that, he would have to remember God's promises. And if you remember last week, we talked about three of them, the promise of the land, the promise of victorious leadership, and the promise of God's presence. Secondly, Joshua would have to rise to the occasion in obedience to God. God called him to arise and go over that Jordan. So he would have to be strong and courageous. And if you remember, what we said last time, this is not something he would manufacture within himself. God would give it to him. It would be rooted in those three promises as well as the provision of his holy word. And then finally, Joshua and the people would have to rely on God's God's word, being careful to obey God and do everything that he had commanded and also to meditate on his word day and night. And that's last week, and that takes us up to this point, and now we're going to look at the people of Israel and Joshua engaging this mission. Let's look first at the mission preparation in verses 10 and 11. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, Joshua and the people, they would have to prepare in two ways. Two ways, if you're taking notes. They're going to have to prepare practically, and they're going to have to prepare spiritually. Let's look first at that practical preparation that Joshua and the people would have to make. Well, we see right away... Joshua, he obeys God without delay. He takes firm command over the people, and he works through an existing organizational structure. And that's the officers that are mentioned here in verse 10. Now, these are people that God had called, that God had appointed and to aid Moses in leading the people. You can go back to Numbers 11 and see Uh, the backstory of that. But if you go back there, you're going to find that that God took some of the spirit that was in Moses and put it on these men so that they would be equipped to lead God's people. So these were special men. And so what we have here is Joshua informing the officers and then the officers informing the people of what to do. And this is a, a clear example of a very efficient, very organized structure of communication and organization within God's people. And it actually forms the basis of the organization and the leadership that we inherit and we have in the church today, where the church is led by her officers, her deacons, and her elders, where her elders are charged with leading and shepherding God's people, and her deacons are charged with the care and mercy and service towards the people, and so right here, one of the primary ways that God is preparing His people for a mission is through God's ordained leaders. Okay, and so secondly, if we look at the at the passage, we see that the people would have to do something practical. It says, "Prepare your provisions." In other words, food. Go get food, gather food, find it, maybe cook it, maybe preserve it, maybe package it and store it, but get it ready. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us that they're to do other things, but if they were going to travel a little bit and and embark on this mission, surely they're going to have to pack up their tents, right? Get their their belongings together, get their baggage together. And some of them who were thinking ahead were thinking, well, we're going to go into battle, We gotta make other preparations here. Maybe I need to get my weapons and make sure that they are ready for battle. Well, in order for us to live in obedience to God, there are a number of practical things that we ought to be doing. Many of those things are mundane things. See, we don't want to get caught in this situation where we might be waiting for what's next from God but we haven't done anything to prepare for it, nothing at all. Maybe the delay that you're experiencing is because you have not taken any practical uh, steps towards what God is calling you to do. I heard a story this past week from one of the elders, and he tells it like this, don't be that type of person who says, I'm waiting for God to bring me a spouse, but you're staying at home, because if you're that type of person, the only spouse you're gonna get is the Amazon delivery guy, right? You've got to get out of the house. You've got to take practical steps. And so the question for us is, are you getting down to business? Are you getting busy? Are you making practical preparations for what God has planned for you, okay? So those are the practical preparations. The people of Israel and Joshua would also have to make spiritual preparations in order to see this. We have to recognize the reality of human behavior in this. Now, four months into uh, being married with Debbie, um, she started to get more of a sense of the difference in our personalities. And uh, so I was in in school at the time, and. Spring Break was approaching, and I had planned for Spring Break what I was going to do. I was going to spend the week studying for the PhD entrance exam. And so that's what I embarked on doing. So the very first day of Spring Break, I go into the office, and I'm thinking it wasn't an hour later that I walked out of that office, and I said, well, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go to Washington, D.C. We're going to go to Washington, D.C., because I've always wanted to see those monuments and museums. And that's what we did, we, we went to the store, we bought a map because they didn't have GPS back then. We bought a map, so we had our map, we had no plans at all, we got in the car and we were off to D.C. And so Debbie learned a little bit about me that day. FYI, I'm an Enneagram 7, which means I love fun, I love adventure, I love spontaneity, and Debbie is a complete opposite of that. She is a planner. But imagine what's going through her head, right? A little bit of stress, anxiety, fear, like, what do I pack? I mean, how many days are we gonna go? Where are we gonna stay anyway? What time are we gonna arrive? I mean, we don't even have reservations, right? All that anxiety and fear going on. Think of this similarly with the people of Israel, right? What have they been told? They have been told, prepare provisions. That's all they have been told, right? And so the planners among the people, the the Enneagram twos, And those people who are planners by nature would have been stressed out, right? And if they were verbal processors, they would have been saying to each other, so does that mean we're going to have to build some boats? Should we start working on some boats? Uh, Should we waterproof our baggage? I mean, how is this going to actually happen? Um, So think about that's where they are at. But realize this about the way God works. He doesn't always give us all of the details of the plan, how it's going to happen. He only gives us what we need. And you're going to see, and as we unfold this story of Joshua, they don't get the plan for the river crossing until they get there. They don't get the, plan for, the battle plan for Jericho until they get there. They're going to have to spiritually prepare. They're going to have to grow in their faith because surely they're fighting that battle of stress, of anxiety, of anxiety. Maybe even doubt about what is going to happen. But God doesn't leave them alone in this. Don't forget, God had given his promises. God had given the provision of his word. And now we see this morning that God has given the provision of his God-ordained leaders. And so the people of God and Joshua, in taking on this mission to prepare, they're going to have to do practical things. They're going to have to do spiritual things. And so my question to you this morning is, you're waiting for what's next, what's next and what is coming from God. Have you made practical preparations? Are you preparing your heart spiritually for what's ahead? Well, let's look now at the second point of engaging the mission, which is mission threats in verses 12 and 14. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over arm before your brothers and shall help them. And so what is the mission threat that is being talked about here? It's a past agreement, a past agreement that actually can defeat and destroy the mission before it even gets started. And in order for us to understand what's going on in these few verses, we have to go back to Numbers chapter 32. So jot that down by reference. In Numbers chapter 32, here's what's going on. We've got these two and a half tribes, and they approach Moses, and they say, hey, uh, we see this land on the east here is great pasture land. We would like to settle here. And what happens? Well, Moses gets really upset. He blows his stack. Why? Why? because he realizes that this could defeat the mission, right? You're saying that you're not going to go with us to the promised land and take it. You're just going to stop there. Uh, So he he gets all upset, but they say, no, 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 no. We're going to go with you. We're going to go with you and help conquer the land. And when we're done with that, we want to go back and settle in the east. And then Moses says, oh, okay, that's fine. You can do that. So there is a past agreement that is made, and it's a threat. It's a mission threat in these two ways. It's a threat to Joshua's leadership, and it's a threat to the unity of God's people. Let's look at the threat to Joshua's leadership. How is this a threat? Well, any time you have a past agreement, any time that there is a change in management or leadership, this is an opportunity for chaos. This is an opportunity for rewriting what was agreed upon. Now, I've had the privilege in uh, my career to lead many teams in different organizations, and I've encountered this scenario on a number of times where you get into a situation and you find that a past deal was made or something was agreed to, and you have to navigate that carefully. You have to navigate it and figure out, is this something that's healthy? Is this something that's good? Is it even something that's real, or is the person making up something uh, in order to, to see change? And then if you've determined that this is good and right, you need to enforce that agreement. That's what's going on here in this passage. You've got these two and a half tribes made an agreement, and now Joshua is trying to figure this all out. And he calls them out to this. He challenges them to stick to the agreement. And thankfully, they keep their commitment and they avert a crisis and so secondly, this same agreement is a threat to the unity of God's people in this way. It threatens God's people because if those two and a half tribes were to renege on their agreement, it would divide the people of God. It would divide them. And it would discourage the other tribes, right? If two and a half tribes are not going to go, what are the other tribes going to be thinking? It's like, well, maybe, maybe we shouldn't go. Maybe we should stay over here. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? It's similar in God's church, and we're going to see this as we look at the verses in 16 and 18, what the people say to Joshua. All that you have commanded us, we will do. So they're affirming what they're going to do. And whatever, wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Those are very strong words of commitment, right? But there's a little bit of irony here. There's a little bit of irony. There's a little bit of weakness. As we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Actually, we know that their parents didn't obey Moses. And perhaps some of the children didn't obey Moses as well. And we know as we unfold the story of Joshua that this commitment is weak, it's weak. Perhaps these tribes would opt for convenience over commitment. It's easy for them to say these words, it's harder for them to follow through. Similarly in the church, we make these sorts of commitments, we make these same sorts of vows to each other and to God, right? We do these vows when we do membership, when we do baptisms, when we install officers. We say words before God. And the question for us is when we're saying these words before God, is it the same thing like Israel, where we're saying we're going to do these things, yet half heartedly? Now, one of the things that we vow to when we baptize our young is this Do you, as a congregation, undertake the responsibility? Of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child. So the question is, how are you doing with a vow or commitment like that? Are you volunteering in Splash? Are you volunteering with our youth? And you might say, Well, I'm not, I'm not, that's not my spiritual gifting. I I don't work with children. Well, there's other ways that you can assist, right? Are you helping set up in those environments? Are you going alongside the parents and giving them encouragement? Are you praying regularly for the parents and for the children in these ministries? Are you giving to the church so that we can support these ministries, right? The mission of God's church, the unity of God's people is threatened when God's people favor convenience over commitment, when God's people's commitments are weak, and so we've looked now at mission preparation, we've looked at mission threat, now let's look at the rewards of mission. Every mission has its rewards, right? Otherwise, why would we even do it? Elon Musk, who is the founder of SpaceX, says it this way, you want to wake up in the morning and think the future is going to be great, and that what being, that's what being a space civilization is all about. It's about believing in the future and thinking that the future will be better than the past. And I can't think of anything more exciting than going out there and being among the stars. You see, for Elon Musk, his vision, his, re- his mission reward is a better future. A better future for humanity where humanity is multiplanetary. He has, he's hinted that he's going to get to Mars in 2029, a crewed mission, humans on a spaceship to Mars by 2029, okay? Mission reward. Israel had a similar mission reward. They were looking forward to a better future. We see this in verse 13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And so here we see what the land represents to Israel. It represents rest. It represents rest from wandering around in the desert, you know, having to pack up all the time and move. It's rest from having temporary housing, it's rest from fighting and from war and from their enemies. And it would become a place. Hopefully, of stability, of security, comfort, and peace, and flourishing. But here's the spoiler. Here's the spoiler to the story. They would not achieve all of these things, they wouldn't get it fully. And so if we fast forward roughly 1,400 years into the future and get the perspective from the New Testament looking backwards, here is what the author to the Hebrews says. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his You see, the people of Israel, they would need a rest that the land could not provide for them. They would need a type of rest for when the land would be taken from them, they would still have rest in their souls, and that's what we need in our scripture this morning in Hebrews is saying this, that rest is rooted in that creation ordinance where God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. He blessed that day. He made it holy. He made it separate and distinct, special, set apart, consecrated, separate from all of the other days. And if God needs rest, we need rest also. And that rest, he says, is found by entering rest that only he can provide. And it's provided in his son. And this is what his son says in Matthew 11 Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my, soul upon, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden, it's light. We need this type of soul rest. We need this type of soul rest when life is running us ragged. When we are running ourselves ragged, trying to grasp after security, after some kind of significance, when we're clutching after convenience or comfort, we need this type of rest from our constant work of trying to gain approval from other people, trying to justify ourselves, maybe before other people or even before God Himself. And we need this sweet soul rest that only Christ provides from our heavy burden of guilt and shame, our own sin. And only Christ can provide it. Christ is the one who can provide this. You see, where Joshua failed to give the people rest, Christ. Would succeed. He would succeed in this way. He would prepare his own body as a sacrifice for sins. He would face the threat being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, but he would succeed. He would overcome. And now he is getting his reward. He has finished his work and he has sat down at the right hand of God where God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's given us to him as a special possession. And he's given Christ to us if we are resting and relying upon him alone for our salvation. And so the question this morning for you, have you entered God's rest? Have you received the greatest promise that God has for his people? And that is Christ himself. And if you've not received Christ, if you have not entered in this rest and you're still wearing yourself out in this world, listen to the words of Jesus calling you. He's beckoning beckoning you, come to me, come to me. You're worn out, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. What's he saying there? He's saying, I want to be the Lord of your life. I want to be the one who is in control of your life. You really don't have control. You're spending all your time, you're wearing yourself out. Out, trying to control your life let it go let me be the Lord let me be the one that's in control and I will give you rest and if you rest in Christ you will find grace you'll find grace why is that because you're not gonna have to be like Israel you're not gonna have to fight to get rest Why? Because Christ went ahead of you. He fought for you. He labored for you. He is the one who gave up rest so that you could finally have it. Would you pray with me? Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is a rest to be found in this weary world. So many of us are worn out We are beaten down. We're beaten down by the things of this life, and we do a pretty good job of beating ourselves up as well. Father, we pray that you would call us to yourself, soften our hearts, that we may come to you and find true rest that's only found in your son. And we ask this in his name, amen.